0: Live
1: and on lockdown. Are you, ready? Are you ready? Broadcasting from Edinburgh, Scotland and across the globe. Listen here. You're listening to Ramsey Unleashed. Going beyond borders podcast. The host, Fraser Ramsey. Hey, this is Afia Lethem, creator of the Frame Your Day app, helping you walk out every day in victory. I'm proud to be a sponsor of Ramsey Unleashed, Going Beyond Borders. Hi, this is Zakia Ringgold from NaturalSoapByZakia Proud sponsors of the Ramsey Unleashed Going Beyond Borders podcast.
0: And welcome to another edition to Ramsey Unleashed Going Beyond Borders podcast. Uh, using Streamyard again. Using uh, broadcasting through Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. But uh, this will be obviously using video purposes, but will be based for audio as well. So, uh, yeah, I've got a a very, this is going to be a very challenging episode, a very challenging episode with a very challenging topic, a real topic, a thing that's happening in true life today. It's happening around the world. It's happening not just in Scotland. It's happening down in in England, in London. And it's basically, it's maybe some of the stuff, it's the kind of topics the mainstream media don't quite talk about enough, and it's the stuff that it has to, it's only found out through people who've been through it, who are going through it, and who have escaped it, and the true of basically from arranged marriages, honour killings, and this home being basically domestic abuse, and through being obviously homeless and what they go through, trafficking, and uh, big big stuff we're talking about today with a guest that I randomly I just happened to kind of come across a post on LinkedIn through, and I basically saw a little bit about her story, and I thought, oh, you said you got an inspiring story, so I did a brief connection. And lo and behold, very really spontaneously, after a conversation, we are having a podcast on a Thursday night. So this is what we're doing. Um, so I welcome my guest, Nina Oak. I'm gonna butcher her last name because I can't pronounce it, but I'll let her. Uh, I'm going to need that anyway. Yeah. Um. But welcome to the Ramsey and the Beyond on Borders podcast, and thank you for um being yeah having the <laughs> coming along and being on the podcast, and thank you for letting me let you tell your story. You know, which is great. So welcome. So how's your day going so far?
1: It's great. You know, we connected earlier, as you said, and I welcome anybody that gives me a platform to share my story because. It's all about awareness. It's about letting people know this is happening, and also letting them know they can do something to help, which is my main objective.
0: Well, let's tell us about your. Well, let's start from the beginning, and that's what I like to do. So usually, the beginning, middle, and end. And I think the good thing is, let's tell about your life, basically as a child and living. Your obviously parents thinking it's probably relatively normal but leading up to the normal, which may have turned slightly into a nightmare. So I'll let you kick off with that.
1: Yeah, sure. So if my accent hasn't given it away, I'm born and raised in the United Kingdom. Um, I was born in a little place called Leicester, which is um, densely populated with the Asian community. Admittedly, my parents originate from North India. So um, I'm a British-born Indian. Um, When girls were born... Um, in the time I was born and even now. A lot of girls, when they were brought home from the hospitals, were placed into plastic bags and suffocated and buried in the gardens. Now, I've not had this discussion with you yet, Fraser, so it's all going to be new to you as well as the people listening. But the reason that that was done is because girls are not wanted by my culture. They're not wanted by Asians. They're not wanted by Africans. They're not wanted by people from the Middle East, Of course, there are families that welcome girls, but a lot of, I would say 80% of those cultures are very much against having a daughter. It was in Marie Claire, a magazine which is worldwide, on the front page where a baby is decapitated a couple of years ago in China. And people are walking past this baby without giving it a second thought because even in places like India, I've said this many a times, that a baby is placed under a lorry on the opposite side of the driver. So when the driver gets in, doesn't lock down and runs over the baby, it's that it's that unwanted, that that feeling that they really don't want a child that's born a girl. If I was born a boy, my life would have been so different. So I had all the odds against me the day I was born, if I'm being honest. I am one of three. Um, My two older siblings are boys. And as the youngest and being the girl, I was treated as a servant. So nobody spoke to me. I was not allowed to raise my head. I literally walked around the house like this, scurrying, always bumping into things, always clumsy. So childhood for me was unusual, but I didn't know any different. So for me, I was a happy child, doing what I was told, And to me, it was normality, you know, just the way you think it's normal, maybe to go on a Friday to the fish and chip shop. I knew it was a normal stay in my room and only come down when I was called upon. So my room may have seemed to some people almost like a prison. But for me, it was my magical space where I took books home from school and I played with the books. And those books were named different people and they are my friends. My bed was bare. So the books also served as I used to put them in a circle and lie in the middle and it would kind of keep me warm mentally. I think it did. But looking back upon it, it was um, a bit of a difficult childhood, admittedly. But I think the hardest thing was knowing that everyone was sat watching television together and I wasn't allowed. And that's such a common word for Asian girls. And even now they will know this word Oh, I can't do that because I'm not allowed. And we just have that programmed, that fear that if we do something that we're not supposed to do, then the consequences are so grave that we wouldn't dare go there. How do they
0: now obviously you said when girls are born, how do they how can they get away when you said literally putting a plastic bag, suffocated and breeding in the garden? How do they how do you get away with that? How can you <laughs>
1: Not registered. If if somebody's child goes missing and the parents don't report that child, how would they know that this baby's going to be missing? Nobody would know.
0: That's interesting. Wow. So basically, the, the, for the amount of girls that are born, there's literally they're committing mass murder.
1: Well, that's how I see it. That's not how they see it. Even in, um, say, 10 years ago when I lived in Leicestershire, there was an Asian family that lived close by, It's very common for Asian families to all live together. So all the brothers and their wives and the parents all live in one big house, all like a communal type of place. And they had had two girls already. So the woman, one of the brides of the family, one of the women that were married into the family, had had several um, terminations because they were testing privately if the baby was a girl or a boy and they were just terminating it, they weren't going full term to give birth and then kill the baby. They were actually terminating the pregnancy as soon as they knew what, what sex it was. Wow. They did that several times, which can't be good for a person's body anyway.
0: Wow. That's scary stuff. So how do you, going with your, obviously you being in your bedroom and just being literally, well, I mean, I guess there was no mattress or anything, nothing.
1: Well, I did have a mattress. I did. I had a bare bed, no bedding. I had a box, which I loved, this box. You know, I kept all my things in the box. The thing is, though, Fraser, when you've got nothing, what little you have is everything. Um, I used to do the clothes wash, you know, for everybody, for my brothers and parents. I wasn't allowed to wash my own clothes. So I was kind of the smelly kid at school. You know, there's always one that's not looked after. But... I wasn't allowed so I didn't question it and and I did have a friend and she was amazing she taught me her name was Amanda she taught me all of the songs from Top of the Pops on a Thursday she would say to me I watched the programme and she would describe the programme and how people were dancing and we would um, get around the corner from home and she would teach me the dances and we made some songs up to do. You know, she, I knew about Michael Jackson because of her. I knew I knew so many songs because of her ABBA songs, everything.
0: So going forward, I uh, mean, obviously with the, I mean, how did you, well, I mean, just talk, tell us, and how, yeah. just being this old servant and growing up.
1: Yeah, I was very, I was very, um, if, you know, I was very scared all the time. I've done a TEDx talk, which I would love everyone to watch. Um, and in there I do describe that girls wake up in fear and they sleep in fear because we don't know what's going to happen. So you're constantly anxious about it. You're constantly wondering what's going to happen. If I'm I going to be told off, am I going to be hit? You just don't know what's going to happen the day after the one you're in. Um, But when um, my job was literally to cook and clean for everybody, I was allowed to go to school. So I was very lucky in that respect. And um, I was just literally the home servant. And that's the way most girls were and are still to a certain degree. I think mine was slightly extreme, but... um, you know, on a a Saturday, your dad goes to the pub and brings back his friends. And I'm sure you've been, you know, in a situation where maybe, I know if you haven't, other people listening would have known that their dad goes to the pub, he brings back a few mates. And that's what my dad used to do. So we'd go to the pub, bring back friends. Ever since I was little, I can remember these people coming in. And I'd be scurrying around, little me, you know, tippy-toeing trying to get the food ready making them rice and chicken or whatever it is they want to eat and my job was to serve it and then later on wait on the bottom step and clean it up and put it away and one Um, night how old were you when you started you really had to come six years, years old i remember it very clearly yeah from six i was cooking for the whole house, you know, sometimes 15 people I was cooking for without thinking twice. They'd bought, they'd actually given me a a crate, you know, the crates you get, it was a blue crate. It was my most favourite thing. You know, if I say to you, what toy do you remember when you're about six or seven and you probably say, oh, I had this car or something. I had this crate and this crate changed my life. I can tell you because I could turn the crate upside down and stand on it and reach the work surface when I was cooking. And that, for me, made my life so much easier, so much easier. I could do things a lot quicker. And um, it was a life changer, it really was. I was pleased with it. But um, So my father came home, as he always did, with his drunk friends. And I had turned 14, so I'm starting to mature. You know, I'm starting to change. And that particular night, my mother came in, and she didn't ever wake you up with your hand. She would just poke you with something. So she'd poke you with scissors or a finger, at the worst, you know. The nicest thing she would poke you was a finger, but it was always she'd grab a pen and poke, you know, really have a good old poke. um And she said to me, "Oh, go and cook for everyone." So it was a normal thing. I went downstairs, and I remember waiting for them to finish their food, and I was so sleepy that day. And I think it was the hormones kicking in of puberty and school and everything, and I was just worn out that day. And I was playing with my feet, sitting on the bottom step, and. I heard my father call me and I thought, great, I can go pick up the dishes, quickly wash them. So there were no dishwashers then, you know, I'm going back into the 80s. Um, So I picked up the plates, went to pick the plates up. And that night they, and this is something quite recent I've admitted, because I kept denying it had happened and pretending it wasn't really what had happened. And I almost fooled my mindset into believing it didn't actually happen. Um but something triggered me in February which made me understand I have to face up to it. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately for me that night, um my father grabbed me. And I say I kept my eyes wide shut, but because I was always in my room, my sat, my hearing, I could tell which person was who just by the way they shuffled or moved their hands or made a noise because I was so used to these people coming to my house all the time and my eyes were always down. So even though I closed my eyes, I knew who did what. And it upsets me because I know But my father was the first person to rape me right. and they violently attacked me. And it wasn't, it was a gang rape, but it wasn't, um, it seemed to go very slowly. And I don't know whether that's just because it was me But everything just seemed to slow right down and it was very, um, well, unforgettably cruel, I would put it. But I passed out at one point and quite a few of them had left. And then I remember when I came to, some of them started again um, attacking me. And and it wasn't, it was slaps and punches and then obviously sexual abuse as well. Um, I ended up waking up in a pool of my own blood. My clothes were half ripped. I had blood-matted hair to my head, and I describe it in a, in a talk recently, and I remember saying to myself, you know what, it's going to be all right, it's going to be okay, but I'm actually physically stroking my hair, telling myself this, and um, almost like an outer-body experience. I, um first thing I did was start to clean up because I was scared I was going to get in trouble, right. you know, trouble, I didn't think about myself at all. And I knew something had happened that was very, very wrong, but I didn't quite understand the depth of it. Um, My mother put her head through the door and put her head straight out. And I was scared that she was going to come and beat me too, because that's what I automatically assumed would happen. Um, I didn't go to school that day because I could barely walk, Fraser. So I cleaned up. My mum said to give her my clothes and she threw them away um she asked if no she said I could shower and that was one of a huge luxury for me and I had forgotten almost about the ordeal because I was allowed to shower and that was massive everything hurt literally everything hurt and I went and lay down because I was allowed to lay down and I just wanted to die and that's the first time in my life I just wanted not to live anymore I couldn't face what had happened um And that led to a pregnancy. I can't tell you whose child. And when I told my father and mother that um, this, I I didn't know, I I was so naive, I didn't really know what was happening. But I told them, and I can't remember how I told them, I was beaten black and blue. I'm not lying. I was just beaten to a point where I thought, again, what's going to happen next? Um, But my father arranged for me to go to a private place to have an abortion And the lady came, we sat on the grass after this thing. Um, It was like, a, can't remember, but you know. But I sat on the grass and a lady came to me and she put a hand on my hair and she said, here's a cup of tea for me. It's the first time anybody had been kind to me. Mm -hmm. And I remember more about her, the way she stood to my right, and handing me the coffee um, cup of tea, and I can remember the saucer and the cup were white. You know, I can remember all these things. There was a little biscuit on the side, and I was thinking, God, I'm so lucky. Somebody's given me a hot cup of tea, and I didn't have to go make it. You know, and I remember feeling really lucky. Not how really,
0: just got like, how how badly. I mean, when they say they beat you literally black and blue, how badly were you beaten? Just I mean, well,
1: yeah, when they would beat me, I'll, I'll describe my parents um my mother's very tall she's five ten eleven my father is an ex-wrestler he used to wrestle with big daddy and those sort of people in this country so he was a professional wrestler um and obviously he worked as well my brother who hit me as well who always beat me too he he was six foot tall i had the other brother would not hit me as much but he would be one of the people standing and not doing anything about it but he would be there often um and I was quite frail because I didn't eat because I was I had a very bad relationship with food because I didn't feel I deserved to eat. You know, my parents didn't allow me to sit with them and eat with them. And I used to sneak chocolate bars upstairs from under the stairs because my father ran pubs everywhere. So we had the little knobbly nut things and he had um, chocolate bars. And, and chocolate was easier to take. And I felt I was stealing and I didn't like the fact I was stealing. So I would take one chocolate bar, normally a bounty with two bars, And I would nibble at it like a little mouse and I would make that last for two weeks sometimes, just having little nibbles. And my friend at school, Amanda, used to give me little triangle sandwiches. She'd have jam sandwiches and she said, you can have one. And I think her mum used to make extra sometimes for me. I'm pretty sure of it, but I didn't really eat. So I was quite a scrawny little child, um, a very weak girl looking back. But um, when I did come out of the hospital, it wasn't a hospital, it was a clinic. And my father brought me home. One of the men that had stayed behind at the end and continually raped me was there. And my father said, You've spoilt yourself. So you can't have an arranged marriage. Nobody will want you. And you're bringing shame to me, he said. You're bringing disrespect and shame upon my name. So you're going to have to marry his son. And I thought, Oh, now? Do I get married now? You know, and I'm really confused and not really feeling right. And he said, when you get to 16, um, you'll get married, if not before, because they have a daughter. They need to marry first. And as soon as she's gone, you'll go. But when you get married, you won't be getting married for his son. It's actually for him. And I didn't understand any of this. You know, I was sitting there listening, but I didn't really get it. But what my dad was saying was, it's your fault and you will have to go into the house and you will have to give him whatever he asks you to do, and you'll be the servant there. So my role was almost like picking me up from home and taking me to one of the perpetrators, and I was then going to be there at his disposal. I didn't understand. I really didn't. The next week or two, I just felt desperately unhappy, withdrawn, I wasn't myself at school because if it's if you saw me at school you'd think oh she's fine because I'd be there happy smiling playing talking working hard because I want to do well I want I want Fraser to like me so I'm going to do really really well and I want Fraser to like me I want Miss Miss you know Buckingham whatever her name is to like me so I'm going to work really hard so she likes me you know I was that kind of kid um, but I wasn't. I was quiet and nobody noticed. I'm 14 now and no one's noticing that I'm withdrawn. I'm crying. No one's asking questions. And I come home and I take the paracetamol boxes that my parents used to have because my dad used them with his, um, you know, if he had aches and pains, he would always have them. I took the whole box thing and I took it upstairs. And I, I tried to kill myself unfortunately I didn't (laughs) when I say at that time I thought it was very unfortunate now I'm happy I didn't um but they found me in bed and they saw the pills and they kicked and punched and kicked and punched and kicked and punched literally dragged me down a few steps and I passed out and when I did wake up I was in so much pain if anyone's out there that's ever taken an overdose they'll know that you are in so much pain afterwards um partly from the beating partly from Taking too many tablets just really didn't help me. But that was one of my lowest points. I just didn't want to be around.
0: How many times did you, you obviously, how many times did you try and kill yourself? Or was this what, just a once or a few times? Once,
1: once because the consequences were that I would be hit and hit and hit. And I didn't really want to keep getting beaten, you know. Um, And fast forwarding to that, I was an I suffered from anxiety for the whole duration until I got married and um, when I got married, it was an unconventional wedding because in our culture and my particular religion, which is Sikhism, the bride stays for the wedding, but as soon as the wedding ceremony was over, there's a big party, and I was sent home. Oh. My father sent me home, so I sat at home again really concerned about what was happening. And when I did get to the marital home, they took away whatever I was wearing and gave me some old clothes and said, Right, you will go and find a job because we need you to provide money for us. You will sleep downstairs and my room was like a little cupboard. It was a tiny little room with a single bed. It had a wardrobe and I was excited about the wardrobe again, you know, simple things for me. Um but I noticed that everybody was sleeping upstairs, including the person I just married. And um, every night, my father-in-law would come down and physically abuse me, mentally, physically, sexually abuse me, and um, that went on for four years. And I couldn't four have it. At twenty-one, I got to work, and this is you, the.
0: Well, obviously, when you got married, did you, I'm guessing school stopped as soon as you got that went through the ring yeah, of marriage.
1: I, just turned, I was just, I was sixteen, just turning seventeen when I got married, so school stopped straight away. Um, it, was got, there no?
0: Was there no? Even I'm guessing with you being so, think you, you with well you withdrawn. You can really was there no ever any opportunity to tell, te- speak to teachers or anything to try and say I need help? Or is it just... Yeah, you
1: see, you're so scared. Yeah. You're so scared that you won't say anything to anyone. It's such a taboo in my culture and the African and Middle Eastern culture to right. speak out. You just won't speak out out of fear and I definitely wasn't going to speak up because I was so I I just believed they would kill me if I did anything um there's that constant threat that constant fear that you're going to never see the next day and that's normal and it's not a great way to live it's horrible um but I did get to work you know and that was their demise my in-laws forced me to work because they were happy that I was bringing in some money but then I was exposed to people from different cultures and people were saying, why have you got cuts and bruises? And I'd say, oh, yeah, well, I was not, I wasn't doing them what I was supposed to do and my father-in-law tied me, because he used to have, he had this thing about unwinding a coat hanger, metal coat hanger, mm-hmm. and he would wrap it around you until the metal bits really dig into your, so you, I would sit there and not move because I was unable to move, because if I did, it would dig mm-hmm. and dig and dig. And I had those marks all over me. I've still got them on my ankles. But people started to say, this isn't right. Go back to your parents. Now, people didn't understand my parents were part of the problem. So at 21, I literally ran away. I ran away. I didn't tell my in-laws what I was doing. But it was one particular night where my father-in-law was very violent. And um, it it was a really horrible um, experience. And I decided I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. And when I got to my parents I was really full of hope that they were going to take me I've always romanticized things I think some of us are like that mm-hmm. I thought they're going to take me in they're going to hold me they're going to make me feel safe they're going to get me some food but my brother dragged me from the front door by my head literally dragged my hair pulled me in and threw me on the floor and that's when the beating started and all I heard was you've brought shame upon our family. We can't see be seen in public. Nobody will, everyone will know you've left this arranged marriage. What are we supposed to do with you now? We're better off you die. And my mother's watching, my brother's wife is watching and they broke my arm, they broke my jaw and then I fell and they stamped upon me over and over and over again and broke my hip. But I'd zoned out to a point where I could feel it, but I wasn't feeling it. I could hear it, but I wasn't hearing it. All I could really focus on was this harsh carpet on the side of my face and blood, literally blood. I was watching the blood drip all the way around my head and off the bottom of my nose onto the carpet, making a design. And it's so visual right now, as I'm telling you. Um, and I really thought, am I alive or am I dead? You know, I wasn't sure. Um and that's how it was left. And my other brother came in and said, Don't do this here. Let's take her to India and kill her there. And they stopped.
0: Wow. I'm just <sighs> crumbs. <laughs> so, what? Uh, well, where did you take her? How did you get I me? Mean, broken jaw, broken hip, broken arm? I mean, I it'll be, could, obvious places to take you to hospital, but I'm guessing that probably didn't quite. No,
1: no. I, I was so. Um, I looked. It's so like something out of a horror film because there was wasn't any part of my body that didn't have a cut or a bruise or blood. You know, I was I had dry blood all over me for days because nobody was going to look after me and I couldn't do anything. Um, my father came in one of the days and said, "We're taking you to India because you've been bad and we need to take you to India." Um, no, and my mom, no medical treatment at all, nothing. No, I just lay on I just lay on the floor for days. Um, And I was in and out of consciousness. I remember it very clearly. i remember trying to get some water at one point, but I couldn't reach it. There was some water there, but I couldn't reach it. Um, But then my mum's friend came over and we always have that auntie, you know, that's not really an auntie. That's your mum's friend. And she'd known me since I was a baby. And she um, just whispered in my ear that when I get to the airport to ask security for help because they're going to kill me and she whisked herself away because I think she'd put herself at risk just even coming in the room. Um, something in me said that I don't want to die, something in me wanted to live, and I actually ran away, but I didn't run, I describe it, I crawled away on my fall. So I literally was on hands and feet crawling out of my kitchen because I thought that's the last place they would look me to have gone, and I don't know how, but when the human body's put to a certain point, we find the strength from somewhere. I climbed over the fence and I hid literally across the road from the house in a in a park, in a bush. And I think I lay flat. I just kind of was passing in and out of consciousness. But I saw my father driving back and forth. The next morning, I slept there. You know, I was really unable to move I managed to get to a taxi place not too far and he just looked at me and said what's happened let me take you to the hospital and I said look I have no money but I know that if you get me to one of my friends from work he said he would help me and he said okay um all right let's cover you up with a blanket if someone's looking out for you now he could have been really bad and abused me or done something but he didn't he was a good person he got me to where I was going to but my friend wasn't there So I ended up in the police station. Now, the police didn't say to me, do you want to press charges? They didn't really tell me anything or help me. They just said, we're taking you to hospital. We'll get an ambulance to come and take you. You need medical attention. I ended up in hospital. I ended up in a women's refuge. I couldn't hack it because the people that were there had their own issues and they were dependent on alcohol and abuse. I didn't know what alcohol was. I didn't know what drugs were. So for me, it was very scary being around people of this, you know, nature And I just wanted to go. So I took it upon myself to take myself back to my friend's house. Mobile phones didn't exist in that day. I didn't have any money for a phone box. Managed to get back to his house, and his girlfriend and him had just split up. And he said, Look, I've got a spare room. You can stay there, but I'm kind of sorting myself out. Um, My parents were still looking for me. So I was very scared. So I was appreciative that I was with somebody else around you know and I was very thankful he allowed me to stay there. What was I
0: mean you know what I'm guessing you how long were you in hospital for did you obviously get some treatment to try and get get you back in your I mean yeah were you in hospital a couple of weeks or were you just?
1: I was there for I think about nearly a month but they couldn't fix my jaw. Right. My I've just not long had an MRI scan and this is the problem with old injuries you know your body holds on to that energy Mm -hmm. that conflict because I've been told that my hand um, my right hand because I'm a writer as well um, Mm -hmm. bones have been um, formed differently they must have been under pressure or crushed at one point and they have now formed in a different way so they were sort of saying that you know you've got to be careful of arthritis and things like that um, and that happened because I cut my hand on a glass and I had to go and check there was no glass left. So it's it's that, it doesn't seem to leave, it's always there, you know, and I thought to myself, wow. But then I, I was thankful that I still have my hand because the way they were stamping on it, it could have been a lot worse.
0: Mm-hmm. So what next?
1: From, yeah. I
0: mean, to I mean, you know that you're basically, there to, yeah, you managed to escape, but they could have taken you to the airport, you could have been on a plane to India. And that would have been like, so basically you would be never heard of or thought of again.
1: Definitely, and, yeah. I'm very I'm very lucky. Um, Well, I ended up, I've never drank before in my life. And I ended up going to a party with the person I was sharing the flat with. And I got drunk and I got pregnant. And he ended up being my partner for 23 years. But he was almost very, and I've never, I've never spoke badly about him because I always say that people only do what they know, but I know what he's done is wrong and I acknowledge that now. But when you're in a domestic violence situation because of your past and how you've been treated and you have no self worth and you feel it's okay to hit me, I'll take it out on me. It's okay. If you feel better, that's what matters. And that's the way I was for 23 years. I built businesses up. I had my daughter, which broke that cycle of not celebrating a daughter. You know, I was so happy that I broken that and I said to her I'll give her everything I never had my parents found out about the pregnancy and and the baby and they actually offered the landlord five thousand pounds we're going back to 1993 to tell them where I was because they needed to kidnap the baby my father came in a blonde wig and they had this plan to abduct her now it might sound far out coming from 1993 to 2021, 2022, coming up to that, my father's just come out of jail for abduction. So he would have very much so taken my daughter and killed her without any sort of thought or remorse. It's just in his head, he was saving face. He was doing the respectful thing in the community. And it's all about honour and how he is looked upon by the community, which was not a very good way because his daughter had run away from an arranged marriage and shacked up with some guy and had a baby so it was really disrespectful and he was really um, disheartened and not looked upon very well and he was trying to fix that and then he would have regained that respect Right.
0: Um, Was the the person you basically lived with for 20 odd years and see the same culture or different?
1: No, he was African and they are very similar to our culture. And at first I said, oh, it's so good we have similar cultures. But I didn't understand again that right. it wasn't good because the mentality was the same, that girls are nothing, cooks clean, they're not there to be seen really, not to be heard. But, you know, they can be in the background. And that's how he was. But I'm very astute. I was very businesslike. Um, and to give my daughter what I wanted, I needed to create businesses and money. And he didn't have that enthusiasm. He didn't have that Drive, so I started to create businesses um and I did really really well. I ended up having another baby and uh, uh, my my son my um firstborn boy, so my daughter and then my boy and then I got pregnant again and we'd moved house by this we'd gone into right. a um I'd actually bought a property and I'd rented a shop, so I was expanding I was doing really really well as well as looking after the children because he wasn't working and he didn't want to do anything. And I was saying, it's okay, I'll sort it out, leave it to me, because I didn't know any different. I was the provider, the nurturer, the mother, the cook, the clean. I did everything. I wore all the hats. Um, And it didn't bother me because that's all I knew. I didn't understand about self-care or self-love. But um, when I was pregnant for the third time, I got pregnant quite quickly after my son when I was And this is the bit that gets me, so I'm going to try not to get too emotional. But he um, had this habit of pushing me down the stairs. And Mm -hmm. he pushed me down the stairs when I was eight months pregnant. And um, I went into labour and gave birth to my son, my third baby. And he died at birth. He died after a couple of minutes, if that. And that killed me, literally, killed me and if anyone if anyone's a parent out there they'll know that loss of you know not having that baby in your arms excuse me um I don't know. and mean? um it's the one time I couldn't think about anybody I couldn't think about tomorrow I couldn't think about today I couldn't think about anything other than why you know why why has he died and I'm in the maternity ward where other babies are being born and I can hear them crying, but my baby's lying next to me and he's not breathing, you know, and I'm holding him thinking, I want you to come back. I want you to come back. Um, So, yeah, um, that was really difficult. And my attitude changed towards him. I started to, I've never hated anyone and I still don't, but I started to dislike him very much. And um, I did get pregnant again and I do have a third you know, I uh, have a son, and I felt that God had given me what He had taken. In my head, that's how. It's that duality law, you know, what you lose, you you receive, sort of thing. Yeah. But um, it doesn't take away the pain that I feel knowing that I lost him. Um, and as time went on, the abuse became more serious. You know, it went from right. pushing, kicking. The children weren't allowed to watch television or have friends, and it, the control was. It was it was just not right, and I didn't see that because of my childhood. But my children were starting to notice because they had friends, and their friends would talk to them, and they were from a different generation. Right. And as much as I tried to love them for both of us, I couldn't do that. So my daughter went off to university, and she would come back and get really annoyed and say, "You don't have to put up with this. It's mm-hmm. not okay." But I'd say, "Don't, do don't," you know. And he he stopped her coming home. He stopped me talking to her. She just thought she would find me one day dead. Um, my middle son I ended up sending to univer- um, sending to a boarding school, which meant I had to work more jobs, which is what I did, just keep him safe because they'd had a confrontation where he stood up for me because boys do that for their mums.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He was 15 turning 16 and his father literally just punched him in the back of his head and he went flying and I said, you're not doing that to my children or, you know, you'll never touch them in that way. Um And life got really difficult, Fraser, because I was asleep one day and he literally set my pillow on fire and I could smell Mm -hmm. my hair burning Mm -hmm. and the smell of hair burning is is not what you forget. Um, And he did that and he said he wanted to end it all. And I didn't understand he wasn't trying to end it all, he was trying to end me. And I just couldn't get it through my mindset because my mindset was, oh, this is not... Really, that bad? Is it? It's not that bad, and we lie to ourselves. I think we mm. almost give ourselves reasons that we kind of make things a normality. No, 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 it's not that, and we kind of push it aside and we don't really acknowledge it. But my youngest son ended up getting Crohn's. They both played for um, Premiership football academies. He ended up getting Crohn's disease when he was left right. alone. His brother had gone. His sister was at uni. He was on his own. He could hear his dad constantly abusing and. Um, shouting at me mentally and physically and he couldn't hack it he really couldn't hack it and his body just reacted and he ended up getting ill Um, he went into hospital when he came out his father sent a picture to our daughter saying I'm sorry and the picture was of me asleep on one sofa her brother asleep on the other and she just instinctively knew something is wrong um, she was 200 miles away, but she said she knew she couldn't allow it to happen because she felt we were already dead and she wasn't allowing it. Um, and she rang literally every phone. And when I did answer the phone, I said, oh, hi. And my throat felt really odd. And I said, I'm going to get a glass of water. And I took the phone, you know, the cordless phone, into the kitchen and saw that he'd turned on all the taps on the cooker. Okay. Changes. And the house was just full of gas, waiting to explode. The wrong move would have set, would have sparked it. We would have been, yeah.
0: So what was the, oh, what was the oh, the straw that brought the camels back for you to see? And you get out of this right now. What
1: well, was that? because it know? was just my life that he was trying to take. You can do what you want to me. You know, I don't have any self worth. I didn't have that. So do what you want to me, but. My children? No, you know, not my son's life. And my son ended up telling them at school, I'll be honest, you know, he was so brave because it's not an easy thing to do because all of these things have to stay within the home. And that's not a cultural thing. That's actually sometimes abusive parents, abusive partners. They force you to keep things in home and you don't say anything because you're scared, that fear but he told the school that this is what's happened. My dad tried to kill me in the school instantly, said, right, you either leave or we will remove you or he's going into foster care. And I wasn't allowing that to happen. So I knew I had no choice. I knew that I had to leave. I knew that I needed to protect him. Because when somebody else says it to you and says, well, if you set your pillow on fire, could you not do that to his? And you think, hold on a minute. Yes. Yes, he could. And I wasn't going to allow that. So... We were removed and put into emergency accommodation, which was a flat. I own own properties. I owned a business. I had money that wasn't with me because I left literally, as I told you earlier, with my coat. Yeah. And that was it. They said, don't take cards. He'll track you. So I thought I'm going to end up in some nice, cozy place, um, like a home, and they're going to look after me. I'll have a little room with my baby, you know, my boy. He's 14. But they don't do that. Um, they put you in an emergency accommodation for two nights then you pay rent. I couldn't claim benefits to pay the rent. And the place they put me, as I told you earlier, I literally turned the key in the door, stepped in, and my foot literally went squelch. And I thought, oh, looking down and then looking back at my son and smiling, thinking, oh, what's what? Where have I bought you? Um, but it was sodden, literally soaking. In human urine, and you could smell it, and it really got to the back of your throat. It really did. And then I looked down and I could see poo feces, whatever you want to call it, all over the walls because whoever was there, I think, had children and they were wiping their nappies and taking it off, and it was not habitable at all. And I kicked up a fuss to say to them, You cannot let the next person come in. It's not habitable, and they did change it after I left, but not for me. Um, yeah,
0: basically, just give a poke who are listening and watching, uh, on wherever pl- the platform Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, and I will be listening on the, the podcast. we just a summary that we've been talking to Nidham, my guest on the Ramsey Unleashed Going to be on Borders podcast. Uh, basically, going from, yeah. From just say just from the culture of Sikh style culture, basically being brought up, and literally being almost yeah. If you're not a born a boy, you're literally you're treated just literally like dirt. You're treated, you're taught, you're literally almost a physically a modern day slave um, in some way or form. And we're just talking about how her growing up life, life. to she had to cook, clean from age six? She was raped by her uh, gang raped by family friends. Um, of her dad and how pregnancy, abortion, beaten, uh, and everything. So we're just we're discussing a very harrowing true story of what happens in real life, and obviously leading up to arranged marriage, leading up to the same again happening again, having to escape and also having to basically yeah seeking help through a friend of work, but obviously it all happening again, and the risk of losing uh, basically having. Four Well, technically pregnant four times, but losing one due to eight months pregnant, being kicked down the stairs and went into labour and the baby died. So we're hearing there's a lot more to talk about in, on, on this interview. And we're going to discuss it because it's a great, a fantastic topic. It needs to be told. It needs to be brought out there in the open. And we're going to keep going. So if you're listening and you're watching wherever you are in the world and we have people commenting, we thank you for watching. I mean, thank you. Yeah, it just hit me. Sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, thank you. Uh, wow, this is...
1: Um, I'm sending you love, Fraser. I'm giving you a hug.
0: Wow, um, that is,
1: yeah.
0: Um, I'm going to move on. I know, no, it's... Uh, hey. People from – so we're going to carry on. This is just literally hit me. <laughs> so we're going to carry on from where we left off to thank you to everybody. Uh, so let's go to the next wow. – well, that is kind of woohoo. Yeah, let's uh, – yeah, let's carry on from the, the flat, basically from everything being um, –
1: Yeah, Yeah. so I ended up in this horrible place and then um, we weren't allowed to stay there so I ended up becoming homeless with my son. Very unprepared, very shocked and thrown out almost and I felt like everything was against me and I said to you earlier that park benches were um, welcome place if anything and I was happy to have that coat to keep my baby warm even though he's 14 he's still my baby Um, but one thing I realized is that homeless people are ignored you don't know their story but you'll walk past them because you feel embarrassed and you don't know what to say you think you'll go buy them a hot drink and they say thank you to be polite but really what they want is to be seen and for someone just to say hey do you want to talk And give them five minutes of your time for you to let them know that they're human. Because you know what? It was a struggle. It was um, really soul shattering that nobody cared. And coming from everything I'd come from, my faith in humanity was so low that I didn't think anybody really did care. And maybe give them a jumper or a coat or a blanket You don't have to give them money. You really don't. A lot of people on the street are dependent on alcohol and drugs, and I understand why. I really get it. And I'm fortunate I didn't fall into that um, numbness, although I think I probably could have easily done, just to try and forget where you are at that moment, because it's a horrible place to be. And when you have a child, it's um, really devastating as a parent not to be able to provide and care for them but I'm very lucky because somebody from the school came forward who was involved in my um moving out and she said come and stay at my house my children are at university and I'm very proud you know but I knew I couldn't be so when I did move into her house and I call her my angel her name's Nikki and I love her to bits she um couldn't stop me cleaning the house. She couldn't stop me cooking for them all because I took that subservient role again to give back because she had opened her doors to me. And I was so, 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 so happy that she allowed that for my son, that I had to give back. But I started working. I cleaned people's houses. I've got no problem. You know, I'm not stuck up or anything. I'm just the same as everyone else. And I needed the money. So if you offered me money to look after your child, I would. So I nannied, I cleaned, I went and cleaned office toilets and I didn't care. I just wanted the money I packed in factories for £2 an hour. I didn't care. It was still £2 towards my goal. I eventually found someone that would rent to me because I was classified as homeless with no fixed address, which again is another thing. You can't come out of it. I was lucky I had someone helping, but if I didn't have that person giving me that help, i just wouldn't been able to do it she actually put her name down as a guarantor but i still wanted to pay everything myself and i ended up saving the landlord ended up being a real weirdo which is typical for me eh? but um i had to move partly because he was just very odd sending me very repulsive messages um but I did have somewhere to live, and that was the plus side. I moved away after a month, and I was so happy that I had this nice place in the middle of nowhere, um, a little village place. And I said to myself, look, we've, we're going to be all right now. We're going to be good. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And my head was going 100 miles an hour, and I didn't even look at my boy to say to myself, hey, hold on, is he okay? And I didn't ask him. Because you know what? As parents, we don't listen. And I'm an advocate for mental health now because... I did not listen. I just kept saying, I'm going to get you a bed. I'm going to do this. I'll get you a lamp. I'll get you this. I'll get you that. I'll do this. And my son, he fell apart because during the duration of being homeless and being nearly killed by his dad and having to miss school, leaving his own home, suddenly it caught up with him and he understood that, hey, all these things have happened. He was fighting his own battles. And I didn't really ever say, how are you feeling?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is there anything I can do to help you or would you like to talk? Never. Mm-hmm. He ended up becoming depressed and the school were concerned. And I would say, hey, do you know what? They've just said that you, you're you missing. Oh, no, 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 they're not. No, they don't know what they're on about. And I believed him. But what he was doing was turning up at school and hanging around the corridors and the toilets He's He suffers from Crohn's disease, so I thought maybe it's because he's not well. But he was doing really well, it seemed, but he wasn't. Right. Um, he ended up applying to universities and they all wanted him because he was he's exceptionally bright. But what does that bloody matter when you can actually maybe lose your son? He's just come off the register for high-risk suicides, you know, the suicide risk register. He's just come off it. And for three years, he didn't speak to me. He just started speaking. And what he did was, four years ago, took some money from someone, one-way ticket to to Miami, booked a hotel room for one night. In his head, he'd got this idea he was going to buy a gun and shoot himself and be found dead. He went to London to see his sister. He texted me saying, don't pick me up. I kept ringing him because I didn't know what was going on and I knew there was something wrong. And he said, I've left you a suicide note. Well, he said, I've left you a note. Um, He left his brother a USB stick. It had all of their old film clips and everything. He'd taken a long time. He'd been planning this for a long time. And I stood on the wall and I cried. I was actually howling. I thought I'm not gonna lose, I'm not gonna lose another boy, I'm not gonna lose another baby, I'm not gonna lose my I'm not gonna lose my child. I have got my daughter, my friend who just passed away. I love him to bits. And he stopped work, picked up my daughter, brought her to me. And we all sat there looking at each other, and I said, We're gonna get him back. And it was like one of those television shows, you know, with the whole where was the last scene? And I said, I'm gonna get him back. I rang a friend or two in America and said, Look. I need you to reach out for me because he's not responding to me. And it's literally, Fraser, like a needle in a haystack. But when a mother has a will or a father, they don't give up. And I wasn't going to lose this boy of mine, this kid of mine. I wasn't going to lose him. But the story is that you need to listen to your children and not talk at them. Stop what you're doing. Put the bloody phone away the remote control way and actually sit and look and give them undivided attention say to them, tell me how you're feeling and don't listen to talk back. Just actually let them vent. Let them. Because mental health, what it is, is they have so many jumbled up messages in their head and they don't know what to do with it. So it becomes, in my opinion, a noise. I took him to so many doctors and things, but all he needed was to be left alone. And that's what I did for the last three Years I've left him alone. He's lived with me. I've looked after him from afar. I've been shouted at. I've been, the door's been pushed in my face. I've been patient and I've let, let him know that I love him. I've set some boundaries. You must set boundaries. But that's what they need. They need just to be left and allowed to speak to you when they want to. And when they do talk, stop picking up your phone, stop trying to cook something. Just, Give Them that time because it's the difference between saving a child's life and losing your child. And I know I, I won't ever lose mine again.
0: I want to, um, as people who well, as will be listening to this in the podcast, and we are people who are watching this from across the world, we're going to share some comments. And just people, it's got people who are one locally in Edinburgh and just uh, around, and we just want to we're post their comments. Uh, people here, oh people are actually sharing a lot of love with you okay a lot of it because they're listening to this and they're passionate so uh, one is Gary Gary Lucid who's in Edinburgh he's saying God bless you Um, there's also uh, Dr Carleen Randolph uh, and she's obviously she's quite surprised you're back to work (laughs) she's obviously sending you prayers for complete healing Uh, for me me, obviously because I've had an operation recently (laughs) but Mm -hmm. that's um, (laughs) but yeah thank you um she's saying basically what story uh, i think she's saying yes to something i'm not sure what but uh, i've got uh laura um who's in edinburgh and she's saying thank you to your story and gary who's saying brilliant again uh and we've got sending love to you both um we have uh, because you she was obviously wondering about the social work did there was no social work help at all i'm guessing for your son no no and we've had Vernet, a tailor, and she's obviously no regarding the uh, the story. So so I'm guessing, so no social work at all regarding and help. So basically, you just had to sort of get on with it and deal with it.
1: You no, know, the problem is, um, I think it's called CAMs. They come out, send a different person, then they send a different person, then they send a different person. There's no consistency when somebody wants just to be heard by someone and they make a connection, they want that person. He did make a connection with the doctor at one point, but then he, the doctor said something that just triggered him again and it got to a point where he wasn't going to speak to anyone. At the end of the day, we are parents. We foremost must look after our children or have someone else talk to them, but allow them at least just to vent, let them talk. And that's what it is. They feel they've got no one to speak to. They feel trapped. They don't know. School doesn't teach them about relationships. School doesn't teach them what to do when they can't um, allow this feeling to come out of them. And it's a confusing time. You know, I understand he went through his own journey and he still is, but you know what? The best thing that happened to me this year wasn't that I did a TED Talk. It wasn't that I um, have made the most amazing connections and spoke on stages and become a best-selling author. None of those things. The best thing this year that happened to me was I reconnected with my son. Wow. And I, I have learned a massive lesson that I will never allow that to happen to somebody else is if I can help another parent or even a child. Um, All of these things that have happened to me have happened to me Mm -hmm. for a reason. I understand that. I understand two years ago I understood nobody's opinion mattered apart from my own. I actually fell in love with myself to such an intense stage that I, I couldn't explain to you how much this huge feeling of love came in, all the love I was giving to everyone else. And I'm full of love, Fraser. I'm bursting with love. I want to give you love and everyone love and everyone that's messaged. I literally want to give everyone love because I believe love is the ultimate weapon and I've weaponized it to a point where I can allow somebody else to see that another person's opinion is never yours unless you allow it to be yours. So now I change people's lives. I... Have we're got. Gonna,
0: mm, it, you gonna, know gonna do that. We're going to. We've talked a lot of this before. We had it earlier with the, on a phone call. Um, yeah. We're going to. There's. Let's say uh, with the process that you've gone through and where you are now. I know you, before we go into what you've do solve sort of the middle. That now you, you were saying. You, well, you, you were you're telling me on the phone. You the harrowing of what they do to a lot of girls now they send there's a, you're about a school that you, you're not there's a school that's not like to have visitors you're gonna and you're explaining regarding the sex trafficking side of that could you go touch yeah. on that conversation
1: so i left my partner in 2015 and the police came to look for me and i didn't quite understand why they were trying to find me i thought my partner said i've abducted my child or something you know i didn't know what it was i was avoiding them and i kept getting people trying to say oh the police are after you the police and i was literally hiding from the police they caught up with me it was a lady and she told me she was trying to find me because of my surname she said that there's a gentleman and she wants to know if he is my father and i said yes he is and she said that he's in we're going to send him to jail but we need to know a bit of information from you. And to cut a long story short, my father had had a child out of wedlock, so he had an affair with somebody. Right. This really gets to me, sorry. Um, oh, he had he had a, a little girl, so my sister, that I never met. And um, to say face, because people were starting to find out that he had this child He got the mother drunk because he owns pubs and um, abducted the little girl. He went from different country to different country and ended up in India. And he put her in a school, a boarding school. And um, the police said they went to the boarding school, they weren't allowed in. Parents are not allowed in, nobody's allowed in. And I said, well, how could that make sense that you can't get in you know and I I was going through my own turmoil I've just come out well I'm homeless I'm living in someone's house um and I've got my son as well and I, I it's all very a lot it was a lot for me to take in it was in the newspapers that my father's jailed for abduction and I'm thinking well I should have said something I should have said something when I was 21 he's done it again only this time he's killed her um and I was weirdly not okay with it. when well, I started to dig when I moved on. Clubhouse, actually connections, you make connections on Clubhouse. And someone said, Where in India? And I told them the name of where I think it is. And they said, Oh, that's a very well-known trafficking um establishment. And my stomach literally flipped. Um And they said, well, that's where they allow a child to grow to a certain age and they harvest their organs, which for those people who don't understand that, just means they sell the organs to people around the world. And um, if they don't sell them, they send the children to United Arab States. or one of the Middle Eastern places will take them on as a servant. Now, if she is alive, she's 12 or 13 and um, something in me just knows that she's not alive. And that really kills me. And when I did my TED talk, I really felt she was stood right next to me watching. And um it's harrowing. It really is to know that somebody would do that. But this is the worst part of it. My father's just come out of prison and the whole community were behind him to say that he did the right thing. I receive death threats my door was nearly broken down when I was doing my TED talk because people were telling me to stop not to do it because it's a taboo it's the unspoken we don't talk about these things but I had to do it I couldn't not do it not for me but for my sister for all the other girls that have died for the women that have died and are still being killed because of honour Because in this cultural belief, honour means more than anything. And to retain honour, blood has to be shed. I use those words because that's how it is in the culture. And I don't understand that. I have a daughter. If anyone has a daughter out there, they would love that child. So how, by killing somebody, do you retain honour? And the worst part of it is, in the United Kingdom, If you commit an honour killing, Fraser, you will get three to four years, not murder. So I'm trying my best to get a petition signed to get to the Houses of Parliament so I can say to them, look, I've seen this. I've lived this. I've lost my sister through this. It's not okay. It's murder. And there are cases of people being found in suitcases in the back of their gardens. It's been on TV. It's been on news. People forget, and you only forget because it's not happening to you, and that sounds really horrible, but it's the truth. It's the truth.
0: Why do you, th- <clears throat> why do you think it's not technically covered as much as you'd like it to be, and why do you think it's happening, well, still happening to this day in this, in the UK, and why is there nothing really being done about it?
1: do want to hear about it and the police excuse me, I don't, I don't give a hoot to anybody's watching it for the I have no faith in the police not one ounce, every time I've been to the police with a recording from my ex-partner saying, he knows I'm recording this, he's just admitted he set my pin on fire so they, oh, we can't do anything because it's not happened today, it's happened months ago, can't do anything, with my father I can't hold him accountable, you see no one holds people accountable that are doing wrong things, so they're going to keep doing it because... They think they can get away with it. My father thinks he's bigger than the law. You know, he's celebrated at this moment in time. And I've got no, if anyone thinks I'm deliberately being vindictive, I am not that person. I'm doing it because I care. I care about the girls because I am free. I can stand here, sit here, do a twist. I can do whatever I want. I can talk to Fraser. I won't be able to talk to you the old life I had. Those girls mm. can't go down to the shops because, as I said to you earlier, they are not allowed. They cannot do anything. They're living my old life. And that hurts me to the core.
0: Is there. Oh, wow. Is it, I'm just. Whew, this is. I knew this would be hard hitting, and it is. And this is what, why I like to keep it raw and real on my podcast. Because be, in
1: India. People um, think. Happening in India and Pakistan or Africa or Middle East. It's not because, Mm -hmm. guess what? In your town, there will be somebody from India or Africa or the Middle
0: East. It's happening under your nose and you don't realize it.
1: It's happening probably in your next door neighbor. It's like when people on television and they're being interviewed and they said, Oh, well, you know, we didn't know the next door neighbor had killed so many people. He always seemed like a nice person. You know, you don't know what's happening. But if you're a teacher and you know a girl's gone missing at school, or you are working with somebody and they they said she's gone back home to live with uncles and relatives then report it discreetly report it because there's something wrong what what um,
0: I don't know if there's anything else you want to cover uh, that you might have well I'm sure there's a lot you can want to cover I don't know if there's any, uh, before we go into maybe yeah
1: you know. I'd, I'd like to say that if anybody as I said does see something or knows something or is suspicious, just make that discreet call because if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem, you may as well take that pen and stab that girl that was sitting in a room like I was and, you know, innocently. You're part, you're doing it yourselves. You're not actually doing anything about it. And that's not just about honour killings and arranged marriage for anything. You know, if this world was a kinder place and we actually saw that love is the luxury that commodity i'm rich with love i can't do it on my own i can't Got a couple
0: of, couple of comments here which might um this is gary's a guy at least, his son's a social worker in, social worker in london he also says twisted minds need education monsters need locked up brilliant story well done such a brave lady uh and there's laura who's in edinburgh um She's a social worker, and she's very disappointed that you weren't uh, not supported. And also, uh, yeah, it's happening in Edinburgh. She's working with a Bangladeshi girl who has been hiding from her family the past four years due to her, her not being through with an arranged marriage. Uh, her being a constant risk in, of honour killing. It's very real. Thank and again, for, thank, thank you for you saying. Very much. Thank you. So. It, this is just proving, yeah, it is obviously happening in Edinburgh, it's happening. Um, before we'll touch on what you at the charity you set up to try and, and who you've been helping, so we'll talk about that, uh, and we'll also talk about your book, but we'll talk about how in the petition we can try and help you get signatures for, to try and get it into the, the Parliament uh, and take it from there, but certainly, yeah, so... That, Let's talk about your, the charity you have briefly set up and the, the person, you've been, helping, the, yeah, the person so, you've been helping so far.
1: Yeah, as I was talking to you um, earlier, I um, I go on Clubhouse. Normally people switch off as soon as Nina comes in. <laughs> Nina wants to talk about honour killings. I'm a bit of a, um, a party killer at times. But you know what? I'm not going to apologise because it's what I want to talk about and I talk about it because it's important. I'd rather talk about this than hair extensions and eyelashes. I'm sorry. Well, for those who don't know
0: what Clubhouse is, Clubhouse is a social media app on your phone. It's like a, there's literally audio only for networking from people around the world on different topics. And it's a great way. And through it, myself personally, I've connected with people through Zoom networking meetings globally, which is one of these things that's very interesting to do, especially for connecting with people for podcast interviews etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, depending on what your industry is, as coaches and all sorts. It's a weird good way of simply networking with people on a, by literally listening to your phone, and that is it. That's what Clubhouse is. Yeah. Uh, but uh, carry on, and you're telling me about you yeah, yeah.
1: so I go on a lot of rooms, and I talk about I whatever the subject matter is, I turn it around into what I want to talk about. You know, I I kind of use that as a platform because my my idealism is that. This is not about me; it's about the people I want to help, and I mm-hmm. sincerely want that. So if I can speak to as many people as possible and spread the awareness, it's that educational side of it. I'm trying to say to her, but look, it is happening. Keep an eye out, just keep an eye out. Does somebody keep an eye out, and like um somebody was saying earlier, they've got this girl, you know she's been in hiding, great, she's reached out to somebody, and somebody's helped her. So I was talking on Clubhouse and um I work quite closely with Youth Underground, who are a, a um an organization that work against human trafficking. I'm one of their advocates here. Um they're based in Switzerland. But we were both in the room one day and a lady came up after me and started talking and said that she found the strength to talk because I spoke. She was married at 10. Mm-hmm from the Middle East, um, Kurdish to be exact. She had a daughter at 11 and she had two other children and she was married to somebody who was 40 years older than her. She was actually living in Northland, and I'm going to say that, but I won't say where she's gone now. Um, over the last four months, I've been talking to her and I was being quite calm because I understand you have to understand yourself that you need to leave. So I was being very slow and just genuinely giving her someone to talk to um but also saying now this is how my life is and you could have this life with your children but also not forcing it upon her cuz that's very important the free will has to be there when she told me that her husband was abusing her well their 11-year-old daughter my heart literally just broke and i thought god no this can't be something i'm listening to and not doing anything about so i did start to push And I started to say to her, look, um, you need to be understanding of how you were when you got married. She's your age and he's her father and you cannot subject her to this. Social services will get involved. They have to be involved. They will help you. But let's get you away from there. That was my main goal. Let's get you away. I became a um, bestseller Um, I think three weeks ago, I put my book out there. I wrote a book about, it's called Master Your Life, Live the Life of Your Dreams. It's a self-help book. It tells you how to make money, all of these things. Because I was homeless six years ago and I've created a new life for myself. I've done it over and over again through life. And I understand I've got those skills, which I'm completely blessed with. But all of those book sales go into a pot. And I created a organisation called endhonorkillings.org. I haven't really talked about it much, but I knew there was some money in there so I could help her. And I said to her, look, the rest will go on my credit card. It's okay." And then I remember somebody else had sent me £20 and that thought, I can use that for something, too. So I literally got everything I could put it towards my credit card and the rest just went on and I didn't care because I would have spent thousands to save her and her children because you can't put a price on somebody's life and a child's. You can't put that on a child's well-being. You just can't. Um, so I did talk her into it. It was a very difficult phase for me because I could see things happening but not happening. I put her in touch with Women's Aid I paid for her to go and stay in a Premier Inn because it's clean, it's safe, it's warm and her children would all fit in the same room with her. I rang the Premier Inn because it was booked in my name and said, can you just tell me if my guest has appeared? Has she got suitcases? Does she have three children with her? Can you just tell me? And the lady on reception was so lovely. She said, yeah, she's got three children, a daughter, two little ones. She's got three suitcases. You know, she's describing everything. I said, thank you. I'm going to send her some pizza because you make sure she gets sick. She's a little bit nervous. And she said, yeah, definitely. She seems very upset. And I've sat down that night and I sobbed because I'd managed to take her from something to somewhere else. And I'm not quite equipped for it yet. But if one person, I changed something for one person. And then it was the battle, a new battle to keep her from going back because I know when I left my partner after 23 years, I wanted to go back because it's all I knew. I only knew abuse. I only knew being shouted at. I didn't know what to do with myself. Even though I was protecting my son, I still, part of me wanted to go back because I didn't know anything else. And she wouldn't reply to me. I was sending her lovely messages just to sort of be supportive. Two days ago, three days ago, sorry, she sent me a message saying, I've made a friend. I know that I'm not going back and the children are being looked after, we have a counsellor, they're talking to us all, and thank you, and I'm okay. And I actually sat back and thought, well, okay, last, you know. And I realised how important it is to be able to give somebody that luxury of freedom, just to allow them to live that life. And now her children, that circle, um, that circle has been broken. They're not going to think that that's a normality because it's not. Um, And I felt very... I felt very blessed. I do feel everything that happened to me happened to me for a reason. I believe I was treated badly as a child. So I can go to a six year old girl and hold her and say, I don't know how you feel, but you know what? You are loved. You are enough. You are beautiful. I can go to a 14 year old girl who's suffered from sexual abuse and rape and say to her, Tell me how you feel. That's all I wanted for someone to put their arm around me and say, How do you feel? I can go to a woman now, a young 23-year-old who's a mother, who's with somebody she shouldn't be with, and say, you deserve better. You are enough. You're not too fat. You know, my partner used to say, I'm not going to marry you because you're just too ugly, too fat. Do this, do that. And i say, okay, I understand. That's what I used to say. And I need to say to these women, I need to say to these women that you think you're going to get killed if you leave, but if you don't leave, you're going to get killed. And you've got to think about your children because they do see everything. You're staying in a relationship because of your children, but your children are being affected like my boys have been affected. They suffer from not having that relationship, that abandonment issue, that, uh, you know, all of the mental health that they're suffering now is all part of a bigger thing. And I want to help other people not go through that. I really do. And for those people that think they can't go on, I'm, I've i done it. If I can do it, you can do it.
0: How, With all the people who are listening to this or have been watching from different parts of the world, how can we help you? How can these people who have been listening and watching, there's people in America, there's people in Edinburgh, and how can these people help you? And how can they just... Yeah, connect with you privately. Have a chat oh, with you.
1: Yeah,
0: essentially. Yeah.
1: firstly Thank you for gifting your time to me for being here today. We've been on for an hour now, and I know that we've been on this long. And I, I sincerely thank you because you've taken time out of your day to sit and listen, and I value that. So appreciate that. I'm very grateful. Secondly, awareness. You know, f- look at my name, TEDx spread that message because that message says it all even if you're not buying anything you don't have to I'm not asking for anyone's money I'm asking for support I'm asking you to see something wrong and report it make a discreet call if anyone's out there that wants to buy my book it's available on ninaalt.com and the proceeds do go to my cause which I'm helping other people we
0: have got um yeah Gary, he's sol- an next soldier. Gary, he's an next soldier. He used to be in Cyprus a lot. Um, he's willing to help, so you've yeah. got people here offering. Uh, we'll get the link to the. Let. you've got your book i know people will show it will describe your book people will see it but can you describe it for those who are listening to it for audio purpose only so if you describe your book, even though you're (laughs) showing it to people
1: (laughs) (laughs) i'm showing it you can't see it no it's it's, um i am an international speaker i speak on lots of stages about (laughs) lots of different things um my main message is always keep going you know find your keep going Whatever it is you're going through life, find your keep going. And I care. I really sincerely care about people I don't even know um, because you matter. And this book literally covers how to make money, how to hold on to money, how to find your self worth and self love, which is huge. It's a massive thing it's very important it's not all airy fairy it matters because when you feel good about yourself you go out and you have the best day you're going to have if you go to a party and you're feeling rubbish you're not going to have the best time so it really does all come from within if you feel you deserve that money you're going to get it but I've written about family which is a whole um, chapter because family is not always easy it tells you how to deal with family how to deal with conflicts as well Um, I cover COVID. Coping with COVID was an extra session. Health um, and relationships is another one that I've got in there. What I know about relationships, I'm trying to pass on my knowledge so that the reader is able to not make the same mistakes and sidestep the things I didn't notice or do. Um, What I do want to say also is for anybody listening that is in trouble, I know it's hard to ask for help. I know if you're suffering from mental health, there's a lot of numbers that you can ring, but you don't do that. You don't do that. I understand that. Suicides are increasing across all universities with young people because they're feeling very ignored and isolated. So to them, I would say speak to a friend, speak to anybody, just speak to somebody. Please speak to somebody because your life matters and things can get better. They will get better. To anybody that's being forced into a marriage or a woman that's being held under her the duress of a physically violent partner or mentally violent partner or someone that's being trafficked and being taken against their will, I know how hard it is to ask for help. But there are signs if you are being forced out of the country Place a metal object either in your pocket or your knickers or somewhere that the other person won't see. As soon as you go through security, you're going to set that buzzer off and you just whisper, be brave, be brave. You can do this and say, help me. You'll be taken into the back and then you can explain and you won't have to go through anything that anyone's telling you you have to go through. Your life matters to me. I care and I love her. I do care about you and I love you very much. So please, please don't let them do that. If what, you want uh, to make a sign, sorry, me. Fraser. Oh, sorry. There's a universal sign. If anybody's watching this, if you see somebody making this sign, it was recently in the newspaper, somebody in America was saved because of this sign. I've been showing this sign for years now. And the sign is literally you hold your hand up and you put your thumb in. That means you're trapped and then you close it, which means you're stuck, you can't get away. If you do that at the back of a window, if the car, at a police station, at an airport, even at a restaurant, a lot of people know this sign now and they will help you. So please understand that you will be saved. Sorry, Fraser.
0: No, no, it's good. Uh, Do you, with what you're trying to do, being obviously an advocate for your own, for what you've gone through yourself personally and for others, and trying to want to help and hopefully help with what you've set up. Are you, with the the culture of what you were brought up in, are you still, as you said, since your TED Talk, you got a lot of threats. Are you still at risk of threats down the line? And is your life at risk?
1: Yeah, my life is at risk. But you know what? I stopped running and I replaced that fear with the love. And I believe that I'm going to be just fine. It's not It's not being stupid. Of course, I'm at risk, but I will do whatever I can in the time that I'm here. I recently put something on LinkedIn, as you probably saw. I had lots of messages. Some of them were marriage proposals, which I thought was quite odd. <laughs> I also had, I will chop your head off and we will carry your head around the village type of messages. And you know what? I laugh at those now because I don't talk about them too much. I don't give them that energy because I'm very much spiritual and I believe in energy. I just know I'm doing something right for people to be sending me those messages and I won't stop now that I've started.
0: Where can people connect with you?
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm on Instagram, which is probably the portal I use the most. I am on Instagram under London's Life Coach and also Nina underscore the Brit. I have my own website called NinaAlt.com. I also have the new website that I'm trying to get a little bit better than it is. It's very temporary at the moment, which is called Um, And I'm on LinkedIn as well, just my name on LinkedIn. I would love some support because I say that, you know, I can't stop the hands of time. I can't make the hands of time go backwards to save the people that have unfortunately been taken from this world at such a young age. But if you take my hand, I'm not so alone. I feel support. And I know that in numbers we can do this. We can make a change. We really can.
0: Um, we will have all these links in the show notes for the podcast. Who uh, people who want to re- listen to this on the audio purpose and not obviously watching? Um, you did, just to, quickly before I end, I just, it just came to mind, you, on the call we had before, you mentioned uh, it, you, you had an insight to what, the trafficking side and it happen, what even happens in Glasgow quite a lot as well that you knew of. Do you have any more insight to that? I'd like to talk about that briefly.
1: Yeah, I mean, what happens when someone says they've gone to live with a relative is translated into we've took her to Pakistan, India, wherever they've taken her and they've killed her or they have sold her to an older man. It's a common, common thing
0: will it ever stop? Or is it something that's going to be...
1: It won't stop, because people think that they can do it until we take away that underground um, hidden agenda and make it common, which is why I want everyone to talk about it. And if someone's talking about, oh, my God, someone's stealing, someone's stealing, someone's stealing, the person that's stealing will maybe stop because they know people are talking about it. And it's that simple. We just need to keep talking about it and saying honor killings happen oh my god did you know honor killings happen oh you're indian do you know about honor killings that happen and i'll tell you i don't get very much support from my own community or the african community or the middle eastern community because i'm i'm speaking out so they see me as almost a bad person because i'm it's taboo it's forbidden you know and I have to do this. I know someone has to do it, and I believe God bestowed it upon me, put me through all these lessons to teach me that, Nina, you are the one that's going to be able to start a ball rolling, maybe for future um, generations to be able to start the change. So I'm starting something with the hope and belief from love for these girls that deserve a better life. I'm sure
0: as I say, with people who have watched and want to connect with you, you might be a great knowledge, especially with, there's Laura who, in Edinburgh who's a social worker, it might be a great insight to helping her and assisting in some way uh, with what she's dealing with, somebody the same who's trying, is escaping uh, or has escaped, but as I say, uh, might be a great insight to helping in her conversation. I'm sure I can do some connecting up uh, for people who want to get in touch with me. I'll, I'll connect you all up with uh, Nina and we can Certainly, yeah, you can take you can take it from there in a private conversation afterwards, um yeah, thank you, kids, thank you for your time, thank you for something I think, yeah,,
1: thank you for allowing me to share no because it's not something that everybody wants to hear, so I'm so touched mm-hmm. here love so. I love so much um that you allowed me, and I, I'm sending you so much love. Well, we're here to help,
0: and I think it's uh, to bring what you've gone through and what you're wanting to do to help others to the surface and to others, as is what we're here to do. So let's get, if you send me all the links that you need for your book, your link just so people can contact you, send us the petition link that you've set up, your charity link, uh, and we'll get you hooked up with people to uh help we'll even get you onto other other podcasts if you need to you want to share your story again it's talk about this in more depth and yeah uh wow thank you, <laughs> um, thank, you. thank you for the time I, mean, I was gonna say thank you for the time I've actually got time on my hands, not through choice. Um but it's kinda yeah, the timing is right. Uh, and I think it's good to this is what I yeah, I like I like these real true to the bone, literally to the bone. stories, and this is how you inspire people. Whoever's listening to this, I hope that you're inspired, and as I say, if you know somebody who's in this situation, get them to get help. Try to reach out to somebody who can help them and get them out of before. Like at the beginning of this interview, that the little girl babies who are born are simply put in plastic bags to suffocate and buried in the garden. Who are, they're Literally, these guys are committing... Mass murder and they're getting away with it. This has to stop. Will Will it stop? We don't know, but this has to stop. So thank you to my guests, and thank you to everyone who's watching and listening, wherever you are in the world. This is Ramsey Fraser from Ramsey Unleashed, going beyond borders podcast, keeping it unleashed as I like to do. And thank you, Nina. I hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> I hope you well. Want to say enjoy. Uh, Kind of, yeah. You know, what I mean, uh hope you. Whew, wow, I have to say, this is yeah, yeah, brilliant. That's and thank you to all the comments, the great comments, and we hopefully just let me know if we'll connect you a lot laura I think you're gonna you're gonna have your connections. You're gonna you're gonna be up all night connecting with these people. <laughs> so, but we'll get your book. We'll get the links to everything. Um, And go from there. So, thank you to everyone who's been listening again. I'm just kind of like blown away, completely, completely blown away. And uh, wow, (sighs) this is a podcast. I, well, jinx. But thank you. Thank you for everything. Thank you for the time. Thank you for the very short, the short notice interview that we arranged. And let's just get help you out and get your message out there and get what you do and get this. Let's blow this up. Okay. So, to everybody, take it easy. Have a great night, great weekend, wherever you are coming up and we will uh, speak to you uh, shortly. Okay, bye-bye.